We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll read together verses 17 through 22. I will actually be preaching on the larger passage down to verse 31, but we'll just read these first few verses together, starting at verse 17. I'll start and just join in with me as we read God's Word. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Amen. My uh, subject for today is the upside-down kingdom. The upside-down kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in the coming moments you will speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, use these lips of clay and we pray that uh, by your Spirit you would dig out our hearts and our ears that there would be a place where your word could be received on good ground. Be with us now in the coming minutes for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The upside-down kingdom, God's kingdom is almost never what we would expect it to be. Almost never. My guess is that every person in this room today has experienced situations in their life that you thought you had it all figured out. But what ended up happening was something very different, very opposite of what you were expecting. Are we going to need to? Okay. All right. See, I even need the mic turned on for me. I have issues with that. Okay. Is this working? We good? Okay, beautiful. So, as I was saying before I was rudely interrupted, <laughs> there are uh, situations in all of our lives that catch us by total surprise. I had it figured out. I knew what this was, but now it's the opposite of what I thought it was. Oh, yeah. I had a friend that I grew up with, my best friend, as a kid, his name was Kevin Spawn. My dad used to say of Kevin, that boy doesn't have a serious bone in his whole body. He, he just was a, a young man as a, as a young man and a teenager who just didn't seem to care about anything, didn't take anything seriously at all. We, would, we played basketball all the time. He'd be dribbling down the court, and out of nowhere, he'd just throw the ball up in the air and keep walking. If you were on his team, you would be hot. If you were on the other team, you'd 
get the ball, do a layup, and be glad. But that was Kevin. Now, in school, he did not work hard at school at all, right? So, so in school, like a lot of people aim for a, a certain point in their graduating class. We had 250 people in my graduating class. So you had a few people at the very top. They're trying to be valedictorian. Maybe they don't quite make it. They're salutatorian. They're second in the class. So some people are trying to get in the top 10% or the top 20% or the top 50%. People are trying, vying for position. Kevin had a goal. He had a clear goal. There's 250 people. I want to be number 250. And he worked hard at that goal. He said, is there a way I can study just enough to get a 65? I don't want to wreck up my cred and get a 66 and everybody think I'm smart. Let me get a 65 and just barely pass. He did graduate. You know, they always tell you who's the top of their class. They don't tell you who is at the bottom. But I know he probably got that coveted position. So Kevin, when he graduates high school, goes into the military uh, in the first few weeks, he's in boot camp. The guy who shares a bunk who's just above him tries to commit suicide. And it is an extremely bloody, messy thing that happens. And it scares my, my friend. And uh, there's a Christian as well in, in his group who begins telling him about Jesus. And uh, Kevin becomes a Christian. He starts sending me letters and cassette tapes yes that was a thing uh so were letters before email and he's sending me this stuff and i'm like this is so weird uh christians are playing music with guitars that's weird to me i grew up in the catholic church like what is this and he's sending me letters about jesus being everything to him and i'm like what is that but within a couple months i come to christ uh god was at work but kevin when he gets out of the air force uh, he goes to college, something he never wanted to do. He graduates at the top of his class in college. He goes to seminary and uh, excels at seminary. Then he goes to Oxford, England, to Oxford University to do a Ph.D. in Old Testament studies and ancient Semitic languages. If you've ever seen ancient Semitic languages, all I know is Hebrew, but there's about 14 of them he had to study in his PhD program. It looks like a chicken was uh, dipped their little paws in ink and jumped around the paper. And so Kevin uh, undertakes all of this and becomes a PhD. He's been a seminary professor now for many years. My wife has met Kevin. My dad says, he doesn't have a serious bone in his body. My wife says, why is he so serious all the time? God has a way of surprising you. And, and his kingdom is like that. What you think you know and expect, he turns it on its ear to where it is totally not what you expect. Let's look at these verses, starting at verse 17. My, my first point that I want to make here is that this young man who comes to Jesus comes with an honest request. He has an honest request. Look at verse 17. And he was setting out, speaking of Jesus, on a journey. A man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. I just want to take a second to look 
at this man. We have already read from verse 22 that he had many possessions. He was a wealthy man. We know that. And this uh, 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 situation is also talked about in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. So we have three separate accounts of Jesus' encounter with this man. We learn in Matthew's gospel that he was a young man. So it doesn't tell us anything about his age here in Mark, but in Matthew, they use a word that says he was a young man. So that word would indicate that he was past puberty, but probably not yet married. So we can ascertain that this is a young man, probably somewhere in his 20s. He's rich, he's wealthy, and he's young. But not only that, we find out in Luke's gospel, it says he was a ruler. So that's why the heading of your Bible probably says the rich young ruler. We know that as we put together these accounts. A ruler would have meant he was a ruler of a synagogue. So in his locality, there was a synagogue where the people of God met. The Torah was read and it was uh, talked about, commented on. Other things happened among the Jewish community. And he was a ruler there. Probably, perhaps the only one, perhaps there were others, but he had a critical function of administering the business of God's people in that synagogue. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. He had a lot of good stuff going on in any way that we would look at it in this world. And yet, the Bible says he runs to Jesus. A very strange thing for a rich man in that day to do. He runs to Jesus. And he kneels before him. He humbles himself. Something that a rich man would never do. Especially going after this controversial prophet Jesus that the, the, the major religious leaders are not sure about in all, at all. In fact, if they are sure about him, they're sure that he's a blasphemer, that he's got issues. Why would you associate yourself with this man? But there's something here that's compelling him. Jesus is leaving town and he says, I got to get to him before he leaves town. He's asking and he's coming with an honest request, an honest request as he comes to Jesus and he says teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life now there, there's one issue in this question he says what do I have to do and we'll see that we'll come back to that in a minute but there's something that he's already missed because if you read just above this the little children were coming to Jesus and his disciples said, no, 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 don't let them come. But Jesus says in verse 15 here, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. See, you don't get the kingdom of God because you did something worthy of it. He says you've got to receive it like a child. A child didn't earn anything, and yet this man, coming sincerely, he's aware that he has a lack, although he's all, got all these things going for him, he's aware of a lack in his life, and he says, what must I do? And he calls Jesus good teacher. Now going on to verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. So some folks use this scripture to say, see, Jesus is not claiming to be God. He doesn't claim to be God. But he claims to be God all over the New Testament, and there is no disclaimer in this verse. 
He is simply doing this. He's letting this man know, don't just use your words loosely and say good teacher, because if I'm a good teacher, that means I've got to be God. There's no one good except God. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here, and I'm not a good teacher, or I'm not God. He doesn't say that at all. He simply points out the fact that this young man should not use his words loosely as he says, good teacher. Jesus is indeed the good teacher. He is God come to earth. But Jesus answers him. You want to know what to do? Okay. Verse 19. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What Jesus does here is basically runs off, not in order, but he basically runs off the second half of the Ten Commandments to this man. And he says, you, you, you want to inherit eternal life? Do this stuff. Now, this young man probably knew something about inheritance. He was young and he was rich. My guess is, the Bible doesn't say it, but my guess is he didn't start a dot-com, right? He probably didn't start a dot-com to get rich. He probably had a dot-dad, right? So he, he got rich from Papa, right? So he received an inheritance, and he's asking, how can I inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? I know to get the inheritance from my dad, I had to be this good son and do, do some things. I, I got the inheritance. What do I have to do now? And Jesus leads him to the commandments first. He's actually doing some good evangelistic work. Paul says that the law comes, or the commandments come, as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ uh, th th that's a tutor that leads us to Jesus, but he brings him to the commandments. But the young man says this in verse 20. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Now, our tendency as 21st century Christians who've been in church a little while is to say, aha, he's arrogant. He thinks that he's kept all of God's law. But actually, Jesus doesn't rebuke that. He doesn't rebuke it, although Jesus had made clear the reality of the law in the Sermon on the Mount and in many other places that the law spoke to an internal reality, not just to external rules of keeping. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him here. He says, I've kept it from my youth. And that was the teaching of many rabbis. He probably sat under teaching that said, yes, you have to fully obey the law. And he believed that he had. Jesus doesn't rebuke him at this point. But now we come to Jesus' response, which is a shocking response that he makes to this man. Look with me at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And I want, I want to stop there for a minute. Only in Mark's gospel do we see this aside that says Jesus looked at him and loved him. If you, we're going to read the rest of this account. The conversation's only a, a few more seconds long, but the Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He cared about this man. Don't let anyone tell you, no matter where you are at in your relationship with the Lord or outside of a relationship with the Lord, that Jesus doesn't love you. Jesus knew this man's heart. And, and he had to know that in a moment, he's going to walk away from me. But the Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
And, and even the, the grammatical form is called an ingressive aorist, which means it's the beginning of an ongoing action. In other words, Jesus began to love this man. It doesn't tell us that when he walked away, Jesus stopped loving him. He didn't. And for us, that's good news because some of us have started and stopped so many times. But when you stop and when you walk away, God's love for you never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus loves you. Jesus loved this man. But then Jesus gives this shocking response to him. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So Jesus, this is one command with with two parts. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't say to this rich young ruler, uh, By the way, we'll call him John. John, have you been tithing? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, have you been generous with your money? Come on, tell me the truth. Have you been giving alms? Have you been helping out the poor? He doesn't say that. Jesus says, I want you to take everything that you have, sell it, get the best price you can, and take all of that loot and give it to poor folk. In other words, Jesus says, I want you who are rich to give up all that you have so that you become poor, and those who are poor, you give to them so that they won't be poor anymore, and then on top of that, I want you to come and follow me, an itinerant preacher who often doesn't have a place to lay down his own head. In other words, you're not going to have an opportunity to get rich again. You're following this poor old itinerant preacher. He says, I need you to give everything up. It's interesting. There's no other person in the New Testament that Jesus speaks to like this in terms of giving this specific command, go sell everything. So it's not a command for every person. Some of you right now are really glad. Hallelujah. God's not saying, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. But, the, but what God is saying to you is every bit as meaningful and powerful as that. No one gets off the hook. Why does he command this man to do this? It's not because he's got a lot of stuff, but Jesus understands that his stuff has got him. I love the fact that although this man, with all his riches, with all his morality, following the commandments, still is troubled and comes to Jesus. He says, there's, I know there's something missing. But when Jesus puts his finger on the thing that this young man is trusting in that is not God, he can't take it anymore. So the question for us is not about your possessions, but it is this. What are you trusting in today? At your deepest level, what is it that you feel you can't live without Is there an answer to a question that you have to have before you'll come to God? Is there uh, something in your reputation, position, or something else that is more important than God himself? Jesus puts his finger on this. And for every one of us, Jesus wants to get in the cracks and crevices of our lives and destroy those idols that we put above him. You see, verse 22 is a sad verse. 
It says, but he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He, he, he was grieving. He knew that there was something missing. He came to the one who was the answer and had the answer. And when he got the answer, he goes away. You see, some of you have a lot of questions today. Probably all of us do. Unanswered questions about God, about his nature, things that trouble us. And that's okay. God can handle your questions. God can handle your doubts. God can handle those gaps where you just don't understand. But what happens when you come with sincere questions like this man and Jesus gives you an answer? He demands that we follow him in that answer. You know, more and more, there is a movement in the United States that is even coming into what we would call evangelical churches of universalism. That is this sense or uh, idea that ultimately everyone is saved and everyone at the end of the day is with the Lord and is happy and it's all good, as we would say. But that's not the idea of Scripture. Jesus loves you. We can say that. Jesus offers you a wonderful, wonderful plan, but there's something that we've got to do as we come, even with our doubts, even with our issues. I was reading uh, an online magazine from a major university, and they had an article about this, the, the new uh, spirituality that has replaced religion, and the idea that religion is full of rules and regulations, and it's very specific. Spirituality can be open-ended, and I can make out of it what I want. And we know that today, people like to be spiritual, but many times uh, eschew any religion, uh, eschew a particular religion, even Christianity to say that's too specific. One young lady uh, in this article who was raised in a Muslim community in Dubai said that religion is taught like mathematics. This is what she said. They don't teach you to understand. They teach you so that you know the formula. She says they don't know. You don't know why two times two is four. You just know that it is. So I think this new idea of spirituality is really, really attractive to people. It's almost like a subtle rebellion. And I think that that's the case. And that is a case that we see even with this young man. It's like, I can make up my rules. Listen, it's okay to come to God with every question that you have, but what do you do when he answers it? Are you willing to believe and obey? In John chapter 10, the religious leaders are ready once again to stone Jesus. They're about to put him to sleep as they throw these stones at him. And Jesus says to them, he says, if I'm not doing my father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What is he saying? He's saying at the end of the day, you got a lot of questions, 
you don't understand, you don't understand half of what I'm saying or one-tenth of what I'm saying, but if you can't believe what I say, look what I'm doing. He says, I have raised uh, uh, the dead. I have healed the sick. Blind eyes have been made to see. I have fed multitudes with a couple of fish and a little bit of bread. He says, look at the works. They tell you who I am. And yet they continue on this path to want to destroy him. This young man, he hears these words from Jesus who's done all these great works and he walks away grieved. You see, it's all right to have every question that you have, but what do you do with Jesus Christ? Jesus has made who, who he is plain, even if you've got other questions you don't understand. And he says, come to me. This young man walks away. Let's look at the disciples' reaction to Jesus. Verse 23. Scripture says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, I like this fact, he he looks around, so he gets in the middle of the disciples. And he's looking around at them eyeball to eyeball. I see you right there, Matthew. I see you right there, uh, Peter. I see you, John. He's looking at them and he says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, verse 24, were astonished at his words. That that word means that they they were startled. They were amazed at his response. What do you mean that it's hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God? That's That's crazy. That doesn't line up with our theology, Jesus. Then it says Jesus doubles down on his statement. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now the disciples are messed up. It says they were even more astonished. Same word in uh, our the translation we're using, but it's actually a different word in the Greek for the even more astonished. This word doesn't mean just that they were startled or surprised. It means that they were completely overwhelmed. Like this doesn't fit into anything that I know. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. They were thrown off in a big way. See, how is it that Jesus can say these words? They they had read the Old Testament. They knew their word. They knew Deuteronomy 28. And God says, if you will obey me, I will make you the head and not the tail. Hallelujah. They, they, They read that it said, I will bless your going out and your coming in. And they said, glory to God. If you obey my commands, I will make a place for you and I will give you abundance in the land. That was the promise. And they saw that abundance in Father Abraham. They saw that abundance in King David. They saw the blessing of God on those who obeyed him. And yet Jesus is messing up their theology now. He says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God harder, now check this out, than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That's not going to work. Now some people have tried to dumb this down and they said there's a 
passage outside of Jerusalem that a camel would have to kneel down and take off everything that was on it to get under this particular passage to get into Jerusalem. But although a guide in Jerusalem may tell you that, there's no archaeological evidence that that existed at all. And in fact, if you look at this scripture, that would be possible but hard. But this is indeed impossible. The disciples are not wrong. They say, they're even more astonished, verse 26, than who can be saved? Who is able to be saved? They use the word dunamis there in the Greek, which is the ability to do something. Who is able to do something to be saved? Jesus responds, looking at them again, with man this is impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. The dunamis, the ability, the power is wrapped up in God. See, this is what we need to see. It's not necessarily about your wealth. It's not necessarily about your possessions, how God is coming to you, but it is impossible for you to be saved by anything that you will ever do yourself. And the only possibility lays in the power of Almighty God. You see, this blew away the disciples because if anyone was groomed to be saved, it was this dude, right? This is the guy that if you're a, a, a father, you would love to come and knock on your door and talk about your daughter, right? He, was, he had money. He was... He had a great position in the church. Uh, he was a moral guy by any means that you can look at it. This is the guy. He was probably good looking. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. But he, he had everything together. And yet God says this one who would be the paragon of virtue doesn't qualify. Messed them up. But this is not rare in the New Testament. This is what we see over and over and over again. So we see that a, a young man in Luke 15 who lives a, a, a wonderful life, obeys his father's commands, has a brother who goes out, takes his father's money, spends it on loose and wild living, and yet that young man who did all of those things ends up inside the father's house while the other brother ends up on the outside. We see in John chapter 4 a woman who had had five uh, husbands and now was living in sin with someone who wasn't her husband. She comes to uh, the well in the middle of the day because she's trying to avoid everyone else. She is ostracized from her own community, which is ostracized from the Jewish community. She is the outcast among the outcasts, and she comes to Christ and becomes the greatest evangelist to her people. We see a man in Luke chapter 19 who is a traitor to his people who has over and over again extorted money from his brothers and sisters and those who live around him. And Jesus says to that man, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Salvation has visited your home. You, you, you see that this whole conception we have about the people who are together as being the people that God accepts is off as far as the Bible is concerned. Only the broken get in. 
If you lack self-awareness of your own brokenness, then you're probably not a candidate for salvation. Correct confession and magnificent morality won't get you into heaven. It's just the power of God. So let's finish this up. Let's look at this last part. Uh, my third point is this is an upside-down kingdom. Verse 28. Peter began to tell him, speaking to Jesus, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children of fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus gives a three fold promise here of the upside down kingdom the first part is such good news he says if if you leave it all if you put your trust in me and me alone i'm going to give you a hundred fold more than everything that you've lost and people are excited yes i love that but some of you are like that sounds good that's not my christian experience preacher uh, look at my bank account i can prove i don't have a hundred fold because i don't have a hundred bucks I, I, I'm struggling right now. What in the world do you mean? What did Jesus mean that I'll give you a hundredfold more? But I would say to you that if that's your idea, if that's your thought process, then you don't understand the kingdom of God well at all. I have two brothers, according to the flesh. I have no sisters, but I can look around this room and say, I've got some brothers here who would go to bat for me, who have my back no matter what's going on in my life, who love me. And I can go all around this planet. I can go to places where I don't know anyone. And in five minutes, I have a relationship with someone. We're connected by the blood of Jesus Christ and by believing in him that's deeper than any earthly connection in this world. I have hundreds of brothers. I have hundreds of sisters in the Lord who love me and care about me, who pray for me, and I for them. I have mothers and fathers, wise people who have come into my life when I didn't have an earthly mother or when my father didn't understand what I was going through. I had other fathers and other mothers who spoke into my life and gave me a word that I needed just when I needed it. When you come to Christ, when you put your trust in him alone, it is there for you, this hundredfold blessing that you get as a believer. But he says, wish he didn't say it, but he said it, it comes with persecutions. This Christian life isn't an easy one. It's not going through the lilies and uh, skipping around. This life is a difficult one, although I think we have what one author calls in America a domesticated version of Christianity. We've watered it down. We've taken away the power. We've made it so that you can kind of go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light without a hitch. 
no real big change in your life. You just, okay, I wasn't a Christian, now I am a Christian. What's changed in your life? Well, now I go to church and I can say these words of what I believe, but nothing's really changed. That's not biblical Christianity. When God gets a hold of your heart, he begins to wreck shop. Soren Kierkegaard was uh, an existential Christian philosopher in the 19th century. He said these words. He said, Christianity is the profoundest wound that can be inflicted upon a man, calculated on the most dreadful scale to collide with everything. What is he saying? Christianity is that which, when, when God invades your heart with his love by the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ, he is coming in such a way that every value and belief that you hold dear that is not lining up with Christ, he's coming after all of those things. He says, it's going to collide with every belief system. It's going to collide with every value. It's going to collide with every relationship that is not like what I want it to be. And I can say what it should be because I am God. And so this life, yes, there's difficulties. Yes, there are hardships. There's also blessings. But he says at the end of this, he says, in the age to come, there is eternal life. God comes with this incredible blessing to us, and he says, the first will be last, but the last will be first. Our made-up idea of having our lives together is not the idea of the New Testament. God comes for broken people. And you may even look pretty unbroken to many, but you, you need to know your brokenness. I don't know about anyone else here today. This is a sobering word to me. It's a sobering scripture. I've got some issues here as I look at this word because I am rich. You can ask my kids. They think me and mama are just so rich. But even though we, we joke about that, the reality is that on a global scale, we are incredibly rich. So we look at people around the world, and that applies to almost every person in this world. Even if you're poor by an American standard, go to Malawi, go to many other places in this world, go to Haiti, and you'll see that that which you take for granted, people don't have electricity, they don't have a car, they don't have money, they don't have uh, running water, they don't have basics. You are rich. I'm rich. This is sobering to me because I'm rich. It's sobering to me because I'm a ruler. I am a pastor, an elder at Epiphany Fellowship. So I'm rich and I'm a ruler. Glory be to God, I'm not young. Hallelujah. So I'm not the rich young ruler. But, but I've got all these things going on. It's a sobering word. God is not impressed with my resume. And I can put out my resume to God. Look, I've been serving you for 35 years. I, I'm a pastor at Epiphany Fellowship. I, I have helped foster kids and adoptive kids. I have uh, weeped with those who weep. I've done all of these things. I lay out my resume before God. And you can read your resume to God all that you want. But God can read 
your heart. You read your resume. You look at your accomplishments, but you know, if you'll be honest with yourself for a second, that it has all kinds of holes in it. And that the only way you're making it into the kingdom is by the grace and the mercy of a loving God. So I just want to ask this question. Will you put your life in Jesus' hands? Will you do it with all your unanswered questions? Will you do it in the midst of pain and sorrow and grief and tragedy? Will you do it when it means giving up the very thing that you prize more than anything else? Will you put your life in Jesus' hands? Let me close with this illustration. A father and his young daughter are going on a hike in the woods and they come to this broken down rickety old wooden bridge there it is and his daughter is young and he's a little concerned how is she going to navigate this bridge and so he says to his young daughter sweetie grab me by the hand as we go over this bridge his daughter looks up and she says no daddy daddy's like what you mean no daddy i don't like that she says, no, Daddy, you grab my hand. The father is perplexed. He says, what's the difference? I, I don't know what you're trying to get at. The little girl looks up at her father and she says, Daddy, I'm little. I see all that water down there. I might get scared and let go. Even if I try to hold on, I'm little and I'm weak. I might not be able to. But daddy, if you hold on to my hand, you're big. Daddy, if you hold on to my hand, you're strong. Daddy, if you hold on to my hand, I know that no matter what happens, you'll never let go. So my question to us today is whose grip are you trusting in? Are you trying to do something to enter into the kingdom of God? Are you trying to do something as a Christian to impress God? Or will you be willing to lay down all of your doings and trust in Him who has a grip strong enough to keep you forever? I pray that you will say, yes, I want to trust God that way. And if you do, then let me just say this as I close. Welcome to the upside-down kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you today for you are such a good God. Cleaned up folk are not going to know the joy of the kingdom as much as those who are broken the world may look at them and say, oh, that's nasty. They messed up too much. But Lord, as we look in your word, it's the messed up folk that find their place with you. God, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice today that we may know just how messed up we are. That though 
Some people may look at us and say, man, they're pretty together, but that we would recognize about ourselves that we are broken, we are busted, and we are disgusted with our own efforts, and we can only rely on the God who is good and loves us. Lord, meet your people at the point of our greatest need, that your name might be glorified in all things. We pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're about to.